Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. We know that the last two years have been incredibly difficult for so many people in education. We went literally from being in school to being purely online and then ever since had this kind of hybrid face-to-face and remote kind of way of learning. And I think as a as a group of people in education, we've found ways to make it work and we've made the best of everything that we had to hand. Now, going forward, what we want is programs, platforms, the ability to be able to really create what we want as education evolves and I think this conversation today with Graham Glass is going to really really help us sort of see how that can fit in and why actually investing in something which is really purpose-built is going to make a big difference to how education can look. And we're going to be talking about Cypher Learning, NEO, and it's the next generation platform that really your school's been waiting for. It's the ideal solution for all learning activities, whether it's creating content, assessing students, or tracking students' achievement. The NEO provides a refreshingly new way to teach and learn that boosts the children's engagement and makes teaching easier. With an intuitive design and powerful features, NEO has all the tools schools and universities need for a great learning and teaching experience. And I think you'll really get a feel for that as we as you listen to this conversation and Graham sort of takes us through the ethos of what that is, how he's been able to evolve this across multiple years and multiple situations. And hopefully you get a sense of let's create something which is going to be there for us to really work with in the best possible way going forward. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Graham Glass and we'll be back straight after a quick thank you to our sponsor. The National Association for Primary Education is a non-political UK charity. As Vice Chair, I'm delighted to be hosting six online CPD events to enable you to be supported as educators no matter where you are in the world. To find out more information, go to nape.org.uk forward slash online hyphen events. That's N-A-P-E org.uk forward slash online hyphen events. Hi, Graham. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Education on Fire podcast. I almost feel like I'm I'm welcoming you home as someone who was born and and, uh, and educated in the UK, even though obviously you're now living in the US. So yeah, thanks so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure, Mark. It's great to be here. So tell us um, first of all a little bit about that journey. You know how how did you how did you end up in America and and what was your sort of education um, experience as you were as you had that sort of UK schooling? Yeah, I mean I, I was really lucky. So I went to a great school um, in the UK called Haberdashers, which is in Elstree. Um, it's an all boys school. I think it still is an all boys school. There's a Haberdashers girls as well, and I had a really great time. Um, in the UK at school. And I had such a good time. I remember thinking to myself, even the teachers seem like they're having a, a fantastic time teaching us kids. So in the back of my mind, I thought, mm, you know, maybe maybe being a teacher is my future one day. Um, but before I got to that particular point, I was invited to go to UT Dallas, Dallas, Texas, to do my graduate work. So that's how I initially hopped from the UK to UTD. Um, but when I was at UTD doing working on my graduate work, I was also invited to start teaching computer science at the university there. And for some reason, I thought that if you were going to actually teach, you had to have some background in education. 
you had to have some credentials and training. But at that time, I don't really know why, but I, I literally had never taught before in my life. So I went in, I scratched down what I was going to do in an envelope. I went in the, on the first lecture. And fortunately, I did really well. My, my lectures were really popular. And so then I started getting a bit more serious about education as a career. So that's kind of how, in the early days, uh, I was introduced to teaching. And um, it's interesting, isn't it, how you know people talk about having a natural ability at something or that kind of you know a, a way of coming across in a certain way and obviously that sort of idea of presenting engaging and actually you know getting a whole group of people to to be involved in something is obviously a natural gift that you had yeah and I, I think the number one thing as an educator is it really helps if you're enthusiastic so I was just genuinely really enthusiastic about what I was teaching and I think that immediately comes off to your audience so as long as you're competent on terms uh, on top of enthusiastic that really takes you a long way yeah absolutely i certainly ha had that experience again recently because um obviously in the last year or so a lot of my um, i'm a professional musician by trade and so also doing some drum and percussion teaching as well in some schools but of course we've been online for part of that as well and it's only the last sort of few months that we've been back face to face and then only literally the last few months where sort of ensembles and things have been really going again so all this time that we've been talking about things and teaching and separate by zoom and then at least in the same um practice room while we were doing it and then we've suddenly been in this position where not only have the the children been performing but they've had some sort of staff bands and support as well so they've actually got to see me performing properly and then all of a sudden like you say not only is that enthusiasm that hopefully i can bring into the into the practice room there but that kind of oh he really does what he says that he's been doing for all yeah, these weeks uh, and months it, and it makes a big difference and i was always very hands-on so whatever i was teaching i was actually doing on a daily basis and that's not true of all professors um, so I was, I was good at what I was teaching. I was pretty competent, enthusiastic. And I also did project-based learning. I'm sure you guys have done podcasts about that, but my way of teaching was always that my students would build things. So even though I was teaching a programming language, the main project would be something cool like, let's build a neural network. That was in the very, very early days of AI. So they actually got enthusiastic about what they were building as well as the, the fundamental subject that I was kind of teaching by the back door yeah I think as soon as it's relevant and and also they can see what it's all about for them and, and like say that bigger picture then it then just brings everything to life doesn't it exactly exactly so take us further on to that journey then how did that involve setting up your own company and systems and, <laughs> and all the sorts of things you've yeah done it's, well it's because I so when I was teaching at UT Dallas I, I wasn't a professor I was what they call a senior lecturer and I think they've actually paid much better these days. But back in my day, we were being paid like a pittance. And so I was, I wouldn't, I'm not going to say I was on the poverty line, but it was pretty close. Uh, and so what happened was I got invited by some of the people in my classes at UT Dallas who also work for Texas Instruments. So because TI has a wafer fabrication facility quite close by. And they said, hey, can you come and teach the same stuff that you're teaching here at TI? But they were going to literally pay me 10 times the amount for the same amount of work. So I, you know, that was when I first put my, you know, dip my toe in the waters of corporate learning as opposed to higher ed. Um, and I really enjoyed it. And suddenly I was making, you know, a quarter of a million dollars a year, which was, you know, an incredible amount of money when you're in your early 20s. So what happened was that took me onto the corporate learning side. 
And then I decided I'm going to start a company where all I did was teach computer science all over America to telecom companies and, you know, basically high tech companies. And I kind of grew a company around that, doing a lot of training and consulting. Um, but still, you know, when you teach the same thing week after week, month after month, um, it can get a bit tedious. But I also really like to build software. And that the reason I was so good at teaching computer science is because I built tons of software. So I decided really what I wanted to do was to build products, not necessarily just teach. So my previous company called the Mind Electric, we actually built pretty cool high-tech products for um, integrating um, uh, software systems across the internet, web services, distributed computing infrastructure. And I really enjoyed that. That had nothing to do with education at all, by the way. But, uh, but it, the business went well and we were acquired. And then at that point, I had enough money where I decided, okay, I'm going to do another startup, but this time at the intersection of two of my passions, which is building high-tech products and education. And that was how Cypher Learning came to be. So back in 2009, I decided we were going to build a state-of-the-art cloud-hosted learning platform that would leverage, you know, all of my experience and um, and passions. So that was kind of how Cypher Learning started. And what's the kind of the the the, the dream of this? What what was it that you thought you'd be able to to help within education that maybe you found wasn't there before, or or something that you could actually yeah. sort of take it to the next level? That's a, that's actually a great question because I know exactly why I built it. Um, I remember. When I was teaching at UT Dallas, I was teaching a, a subject called Unix. And I was teaching it every semester and I was accumulating more and more notes and I was getting better and better at telling a story. So I'm a big fan that if you're gonna be a good educator, it, it's about cre creating a kind of adventure for your students to go on. So there's kind of the beginning, the middle, the end. There are, there are various uh, certain key moments during your lecture series where you wanna make a particular passion a point. So I got really good at that. And I remember thinking in those days, if only there was a platform where I could upload all of these materials in a state-of-the-art way, maybe gamifying them, maybe having a recommendations engine if they get stuck automatically recommending the kind of things that I had to do manually in my um, office hours, that that would be tremendous. But in those days, those things didn't exist. I think there was a, like a very early, early version of Moodle that was nothing really to you know, to be too happy about. So, but I do remember thinking I could put all of my courses there, make them really jazzed up, really fun, deliver them not only to my students in higher ed, but I could probably also sell them worldwide. And, uh, you know, if you if you have a great lecture series and you sell it to 100,000 people, you can make a lot of money. And a lot of the most successful companies are ones where founders are building the product for what they want or what they wanted in their past. So I wanted Cypher Learning to create a platform that would allow schools and universities and businesses and individuals to create courses, um, but not just boring courses, like really fun, exciting courses with all the latest technologies involved. And so that's really what we wanted to do um, at Cypher Learning. Um, but it was a little bit unusual because most companies, when they start, they decide they're going to target a certain market sector. like. One company might go after K through 12, another one might go after higher ed, another company might go after corporate. But because I had such a good experience at all those market sectors, I decided to be a bit on the ambitious side and create 
a single underlying platform, but have branded versions. So in our case, we've got Matrix for businesses, Neo for K through 12, and Indie for individuals. Um, but they were all areas that I was passionate about. So I didn't really want to give up on a particular uh, area. That's um, that's really heartening to hear because it's something which you hear a lot these days. It's all about niching down. It's all about finding the one little area that you can sort of do in, in your part of the world. And, um, and of course, as you get more experience and you've got more things that you're into, um, like I say, you, you can do all of those things. And I think certainly from having... Um, look through the website and all that kind of thing is it's very obvious what it is that you would need to do as someone coming to see exactly what it is you know which of those products are going to work for me based on what I'm interested in but like you say when it's all kind of geared down to the fact that it's all the same starting point from a a company point of view it makes sense to be able to to service all those people yeah I mean I would say just putting on my financial slash investment hat it's you need a lot of fortitude to go after multiple market sectors and I remember in the early days talking with potential investors and they all turned me down. They're like, you need to focus on one niche. Or they didn't even want me to go international. I mean, we're, we, we have 40 languages. Well, we already have 40 languages and offices in 23 countries. And they're like, no, you've got to focus on K through 12 in the United States or something like that. And, uh, you know, if I hadn't have had the experience and enthusiasm about all the market sectors, I probably would have done that. Because going after the multiple sectors in the early days means it's easy to get defocused. It's harder to raise money. You've got to be really, really careful about the way you grow your business. But things actually worked out great. We just raised $40 million of growth equity funding from a, an investment company that really believes in our vision of you know one platform, multiple market sectors. But it wasn't, it wasn't an easy journey to get to this point. <laughs> and... You know, just talking about the, the size of the company, like you say, and, and, and having all those offices and the number of people involved, how do you, as sort of the, the figurehead in that sense, sort of get that passion, which obviously you have, because that's how the whole thing started, how do you enable that to sort of um, filter down through into all those other people that are working with you? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things that I did very early on is hire executives who are equally passionate about education. Um, so whether it's VP of sales, VP of marketing, CTO, these are people who really like education um, just as a, as a business. So I, I try not to hire people where it's just all about the money. It's really nice if somebody goes, you know, I used to be a teacher or I was teaching this sales course at college or I've always loved teaching kids or just some aspect of education that really drives people. So the nice thing about that is, is that every time we win a new deal, people can see, yeah, not only did we make a certain amount of money, but it's going to help 100,000 children in a particular area, or it's going to help a a corporation in Australia to grow their business. So, um, you know, I would say the biggest thing is just surrounding myself with other people who are also really passionate about education. So for those people as you know, we're here talking about education that come in and find Neo and, and, and sort of want to dive into that. Sort of talk us through sort of their their experience from the initial touch point through to what they can actually develop on it. Yeah, so I mean, I'll use a couple of use cases. So one of them might be, let's just say that you are a professor teaching biology in the Philippines or something like that. And, uh, you know, you want to have a platform where it's really easy to create the courses. It's really easy for students to you know, to experience those courses. But let's just say you're also one of those people who have heard about gamification to make things more fun. You've heard about automation, which is a way to script 
fun fun actions as you hit certain milestones in a course. Um, you're somebody who wants to have a beautiful user interface because a lot of these platforms are not that, you know, they're a little bit on the clunky side. So they would just come to our site. They would sign up for a, typically for a free plan to get started. Um, and they start uploading their course and they start experiencing it and they realize, wow, you know, used properly, this the features behind this platform allow me to go way beyond what I've experienced before. And so typically what happens is they create a course. Maybe the first time they use a course, they use some simple gamification, but then they realize, wow, I can actually go crazy with this and I can use automation to do much more sophisticated things. So they create these courses. They notice their students are very engaged in taking these courses because it surprises and delights them. And then maybe they recommend it to their teachers. And before you know it, we've got some 40,000 student university as a customer of ours. Um, so that's, the, you know, that's how it would work in, in higher ed. But it's very similar in the world of business. So you might have a, a company where more and more people now are taking training from, from their home office. Uh, because you know trainers don't really want to travel anymore, and then planes are not really that that safe. Um, so they start building a network of courses. People throughout their um, company start taking them, and they realize, hey, this is the future. We can actually do better now with online technology than we could in the old days. And then that co corporation becomes a, a customer of Cipher Learning. I think one of the things that just struck me was the fact that I think you're right about very much about that limited mindset of what you think is possible because like you said you know you've got the course that you've been delivering it might be on however many powerpoints or various things that you've created in order to get that across and then you think i'm gonna this is going to go online it's going to be in, in whichever platform you think it might be but unless you've really experienced that kind of real engagement and sort of all singing or dancing as, as as it were it's only then that i think like you say you then open that door to that whole new world of what's possible and i guess the really exciting thing about that is what you're what you're doing is you're just creating a learning environment for the for the future which is is people can't even comprehend at the moment but could be very much become the norm for those people to get really engaged in everything that they're doing yeah i mean i think a lot of teachers still think that these online learning platforms are more for hosting a, a Microsoft Word, Word document to a PowerPoint, and they don't really realize how dynamic these systems can be. And, you know, I'm a, you know I, I've taught thousands of people personally. And, I, and when I was, you know, developing my trade, I would always try and engage the students. So there'd be interactive parts. There would be parts where there'd be group discussions in the course with various opinions. <clears throat> I was trying to mentally track the strengths and weaknesses of each of my students so I could maybe do some tailored office hours for them and you know th th those are the days before gamification but ideally i would have given them certain you know fun rewards when they cert reach certain milestones so you can take all of that those kinds of ideas and you can upload them into an online system like you know neo or matrix and it's really really easy i mean it's literally like click a couple of buttons to create a game cr click another couple of buttons to give pop-up badges when you finish lesson two or if you do really good in a quiz open up some advanced materials these are super easy things to do and i think once people have actually experienced that it kind of opens their eyes it's like these learning platforms can actually magnify and scale what i already do as a teacher but in a way now i could have a hundred or a thousand people going through my course and they would all all get a quite an individualized um uh, tailored experience and how do you find 
it, it works in relation to other what people might perceive is 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 sort of coarse platforms. I mean, I'm sort of thinking like you know, Thinkific or um, Kajabi or that kind of thing. Are, are people thinking it's the same sort of thing, or is it very different? Um, just sort of talk us through yeah, that. Yeah. So um, as far as the market sectors go, the, and this is just you know, will help you to kind of understand the buckets that we play in. So, so in a K through twelve um, learning management system. A lot of people are familiar with Moodle or Schoology, for example, or Google Classroom or Apple Classroom. They're not nearly as sophisticated as Neo, but they have, you know, grade books and competency-based learning and things that are kind of a must-have for, you know, for the K-12 environment. In the world of higher ed, it's more people like Blackboard or Canvas or, once again, Neo. Um, and, and there's, you know, they have rubrics and sometimes built in e-commerce and uh, lots of different assessment types so that's kind of like the the higher ed bucket then in the world of business which is where matrix plays there are companies like litmos on docebo and cornerstone are quite well known and they normally have integration with lots of third-party content catalogs there's a heavy emphasis on e-commerce and international e-commerce compliance certification that's a kind of the business bucket and then there is um, hosting courses for consumption and sale to individuals, which is where New Kajabi and Thinkific and our product Indie play. So, so each one of those particular market sectors has a pretty deep feature set that is required to be world-class in those sectors. And it's really hard to build a single platform that actually does that in K-12 and higher ed and business and and individuals but that's what the cypher learning platform has achieved but for example matrix does not compete against thinkific neo does not compete against new kajabi they're they're pretty they have pretty defined um market sectors where they compete yeah fantastic uh, it's really it's really fascinating and i think seeing that journey like you said you know from the sort of the google classroom and, and and those sorts of things things which people especially in the last 18 months or so which were kind of on the peripheral of maybe we can put the odd thing there for homework to kind of this is where my learning's happening all the time now because obviously we're doing remote learning it's a much easier journey then to think right well we know that that kind of works in the way that it needs to but now we're thinking about taking the whole experience to a completely new level well, one of my pet peeves is in fact google classroom by the way and and, and not so much i mean i I think Google's fine as a company, but but the product is so limited. It has almost none of the gamification and automation and all the fun stuff that I that I mentioned that we really specialize in. So there's a lot of teachers now that, well, you know, we I, I'm familiar with Google, I use Google Classroom, and they kind of think that that's state of the art. And it's really not. It's like Google Classroom's features are what Moodle had like 15 years ago. So, you know, it's good that there is something available to them. Uh, but on the flip side, though, I really hope that teachers don't think that this is the state of the art because it's actually not even remotely state of the art. Well, I hope then that's the reason um, this podcast exists is to kind of sort of share that kind of, oh, I hadn't even heard of something or I wasn't aware that was the case or actually, look, <laughs> there's the place I can go and you know, hear about these things and actually explore them and um, and um, and sort of move through that, that particular journey. Yeah. Um, Tell me a little bit about um, that sort of education fire that came. Is there a teacher or a, or a learning experience which has sort of had a, a profound enough effect for you to sort of keep thinking that actually, yeah, that that, that really keeps coming back to me as something which was very important? 
Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. The one of the things that I actually liked the most uh, was learning about how how neo was being used in the Philippines, especially in higher education. Because one of the things that we had very early on was gamification, and the general idea is you can set up levels. So level level one is you're a you know you're a journeyman and it's a hundred points, and then number two is you're a tradesman and it's two hundred points. So you can set up the the levels of the game, and then you can award points and badges using automation based on almost anything. So you can say when you enroll in the course, you get five points. When you finish lesson one, you get 20 points. If you get more than 80 in the quiz, you get 30 points. So I thought I had a pretty good handle on how I would use it and how it was being used. And then we came across this professor who had gone way, way beyond what we ever anticipated. So he, he was using, I think, a Dungeons and Dragons metaphor. So it was all like dragons and, and warriors and fighters. So that was quite creative. But what this professor would do, he would attach these really interesting rewards to achieving certain levels. So he would say, when you get to level five, you can actually just not turn up for a particular exam and I'll give you 100%. Or if you get to this particular level, you can be up to one week late on two assignments and I'm not going to penalize you. And I thought that was so creative. It's like, as a student now, it's like, wow, if I can get to this point, I start getting really useful rewards that, you know, any hardworking student would um, would take advantage of. And we would hear that the, the students were so engaged that they'd be like waking up at two o'clock in the morning to see how many points they'd got and had they beat their, you know, one of their class companions. And so it really opened up my eyes, like these things which sound, you know, theoretically fun, actually can be quite sophisticated and very engaging. So that was when I got a lot more enthusiastic about gamification than I had been before. And I love the fact that my mind was just thinking that having got to that level, of course, you could probably take a week off or or not to take the next exam because the chances are you've probably done it already because <laughs> you've yeah, got all yeah. that extra effort. Yeah. It's, it's a brilliant tactic, isn't it? Is there a piece of advice you've been given um that really had a an, an impact on in terms of your success and your mindset or been able to grow that and, and and with that is there maybe a piece of advice you'd give your younger self now looking back that you think would have been helpful uh well there's there's a lot of things that i've learned over the years i mean one of them just putting on my corporate hat and that is you know when you've got a company you're going to have a board of directors uh, your board of directors it's not just oversight it's actually people giving you really good advice uh, and I would say putting together a really strong board makes a huge difference from a corporate perspective. Um, I can think of one company uh, years ago where we had a very weak board and having a very weak board really, really hurt the company a lot. So I would say, you know, having a strong board of directors with deep experience in finance and whatever your domain is, you know, that's a really big thing. Um, I would say another thing, and that is... Um, Especially if you're a founder of a company, you don't really want to lose control of your company early on. And a lot of people are always wrestling with how do you raise enough money to grow your company without being so diluted that you know you lose control. And so one of the things that we did um, a few years ago was something called revenue-based financing, which is your revenue is growing at a certain pace. There are companies that will actually lend you money against your revenue so you can actually hire more salespeople, you can grow the company without necessarily having to raise money through a traditional venture capital route. So from a, just a pure business perspective, I think learning more about different ways to finance your company uh, without getting unnecessary dilution, that was a really key thing. 
having a strong board is another really key thing. Um, but I would also say, you know, part of what I'm happy about is I had enough experience with my previous companies that this time round I was pretty confident about our strategy. So the single platform, multiple market sector, that was like a really key strategy right from day one. And there are so many people who try to talk me out of it over the years. And I think if in my younger self, I would have probably just caved and go, you know what, you know, you know better than me. Yeah, you're right. I'll, I'll do whatever you say. But this time around, I had enough wisdom where I just decided, you know what, I'm pretty confident about this. And I stuck to my guns and it's panned out incredibly well. So Matrix now is beating the best of the best in business. Neo is beating the best of the best in K through 20. So it actually worked out really well. But that's something that I only stuck to my guns because I was older and wiser. Yeah, and I think understanding that kind of seasons of what of life, but certainly careers and that kind of thing as well, isn't it? You know, it, having a dream is one thing, but having that breadth of experience and and sort of real know how of of yourself is as well as like you say, all those different sectors having had that experience is the same thing. I think for educators, that's the same. You know, the amounts of conversations you have about how you teach, how you go about any given pupil, any given situation, any any investment you need to make within within your sort of school or organization, it's that kind of when you really understand all those things and you can talk about it yeah. to people and share that then it makes a big difference yeah and i think i think business-wise as well and that is you know i'm a visionary by that's my nature um you know i've always tried to go beyond the the state of the art but at the same time though there's that well-known innovators dilemma you know you build some incredible futuristic system with all the bells and whistles but it doesn't do what you need right now and you just go out of business so one of the things we've tried really hard to do is to have a really strong core set of functionality, which is not necessarily futuristic, but that's what you really need to get the job done as an educator. And then all these more forward-looking features kind of layer nicely on top of that. I think by we've got quite a nice blend of that in the company, and that's something that I always impart to my, to my team, which was, yeah, we always want to have an eye on the future, but we also have an eye on the present. That's the way to, to, you know, to be successful as a business and and just in terms of you know you sort of talked about the the amount of countries that you're in and, and all that kind of thing do you sort of do you specifically go after the next country or the next area that you want to do or can it is it a little bit more organic than that because of of course you being on the internet and word of mouth and that kind of thing so sort of that yeah, strategy I mean, as well as the the kind of the sort of um organicness of it i guess yeah, I mean, there's no kind of grand plan in terms of which countries we expand into. It's normally just based on a variety of data points. So sometimes it's we just start notice, hey, there's a lot of lot more customers coming from this particular country. Why is that? And then you find out that there's some initiative in the country or some new law where it says all universities have to have a learning platform by 2024. And you go, hey, that's actually good to know. I, you know, we should probably set up an office there. Um, we've got some, you know, partners around the world, like we're a global learning platform of Dell. And so, you know, we're hearing through our partners, you know, this particular country is looks like it's really going to expand. Um, but then but, but we, we don't go like full in. We normally set up maybe an account executive and maybe one person from my education technology team. Um, so we might be two people in the country. And if it grows quickly, then we expand to 10 people. If it goes slowly, we just leave it two people for the time being. So um, it's it's you know it's not a high risk endeavor to do that, uh, but we are definitely a global company. Uh, you know, m more than half our revenue comes out of the comes from outside the United States, and I really like it that way.
So we, we hire people in those particular countries, marketing specialists, education technologists, SDRs. Um, and so we get to understand the culture really well. And we find that our customers love that, that there's a lot of businesses that don't do this whole, you know, local offices everywhere in the world. So they're already always dealing with a satellite office in, you know, in, in America, for example. So our customers really like the fact that we speak their language, we understand their culture, they have local service, local support, and that seems to be working out really well for us. And how does the, the product itself change through in that? Is it exactly the same product in each of those things, just um, in a different language, for example, or whatever? Or, or, or there are certain things that development-wise go on depending on those different areas? I see, yeah. It's, it's really just about localization. So it's the same, it's the same product everywhere. Um, you know, every customer can enable or disable whichever features that they want. So there might be some areas of the world that they want more advanced features, some areas that they don't. Um, but it, but localization is not easy. So it's not just the labels and the instructions, but the entire help center has to be available in, say, Arabic. Um, if it's a right to left country like Israel or um, uh, Ara- um, the Arabic language, the whole screen has to go the opposite way. It's the getting started guides have to be translated. So there's actually a lot of work involved in terms of making it feel completely native as opposed to a poorly translated American product, as an example. Uh, but, and, you know, we, we've also kind of gone beyond the norm when it comes to internationalization. So, for example, all of the messages that are sent on our platform and all the forum communications do bidirectional automatic translation. So if somebody asks a question in Spanish, then if somebody speaks Chinese, they will see it in Chinese and they can respond in Chinese and the Spanish person will see it in Spanish. So we so we try and use some things like, you know, Google translation APIs to make the system work really well, especially for uh, global companies. And, and I think, you know, people listening around the world to this podcast, that's something which I think gives you a lot of confidence in as much as you think it, the, the whole concept and the way it works from what you've been explaining sounds very exciting. And, and you know, the initiatives in the, and the, the courses yet to be on the platform, I, I can imagine could be mind blowing going forward. But I, but with that kind of local native support um, and knowing that where you're ever you're listening, you know, the, the next step is there for you if, if it's something you, you actually want to take, which I absolutely love. Is there a resource that's had a really big impact on your life that you'd like to share? And this doesn't necessarily have to be a book, but it could be a, a podcast, a video, a film, a song, something which you sort of always think, oh, yeah, there's a moment there or a situation there which has been it's really helpful. Mm, that's interesting. I mean, there's definitely books um, and movies that have had a big effect on me. I mean, like one obvious one is the movie, the first one, The Matrix. Um, I, You know, I love that movie because it really gave you insight into how the world might end up where more and more people are living in a kind of a metaverse. Um, and I, I enjoyed it from an entertainment perspective. But then I thought as an educator, the idea that if I want to learn about the solar system, as opposed to looking it up in a book, I could actually take off in a, you know, in a digital space rocket and explore the solar system. That is like a much more fun way to learn. So I do remember after the matrix it triggering a lot of a cascade of assumptions about how education was one is going to be so we've been tracking ar and vr quite strongly we've actually got a research project specifically in that area um, so that's one you know i'm really into artificial intelligence 
And there was a book which is pretty old. It's called The Society of Mind by Marvin Minsky. Um, that particular one was an eye opener because it made me think about a brain as really being more like a society of small independent parts versus the single, single coherent um, intelligence. So um, I would say, you know, Society of Mind by Marvin Minsky had a big impact on me. And then musically, I'm going to do a little bit pitch for the Electric Light Orchestra. When I was back in the UK, this is showing my age here, I loved ELO. And there was an album called Out of the Blue, which was like, for me, kind of the pinnacle of incredible electronic slash classic fusion. So, I, and I still play that album like almost every day. So. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic and, 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 I, and I sort of I love the way that all these different elements they sort of you know they represent your personality it all sort of shines yeah. through and, and and I think I think for people listening it's always that kind of thing when you can relate whatever your answers to those sorts of questions would be and you can start to see how that one has a positive uh, effect on your own life and also how you can then take that forward to, to to hopefully creating something or being part of an organization or a learning experience which can then have a really profound effect on on the pupils and, and students that you may well be involved in so well yeah. graham thank you so much it's been absolutely fascinating listening to to how how you've put all this together both in terms of i think how dynamic it can be for people going forward um and also hearing sort of how it works from a business sense as well and sort of i love the fact that you know education going forward just can't be what you see inside your the four walls of any given classroom it's about lots of people working together for the benefit of, of pupils and students going through and I, and I absolutely love what you're doing so thanks so much for being here thank you it's been it's been a pleasure mark i really enjoyed having a chat with you Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.